this evening it's good to be with you again in this particular role and place. Uh, I'm going to say a few words of something, something about impermanence. <laughs> yeah, even as I was walking up the path to come in here, there's a, some of you I'm sure have noticed this, there was a tree that had all these really lush pink flowers on it earlier in the week. And as I walked up now, the flowers are mostly falling off and the uh, maroon Bordeaux color of the leaves is becoming predominant. And always reminders in our universe, in our spaces and places, this truth of constant change and impermanence. Huang Po says, develop a mind that rests on nothing whatsoever. The Buddha stated that he taught these two things, suffering and the end of suffering. The essence of the teachings is the universal experience of suffering and the possibility of ending suffering. He realized and I don't mean like an idea, like he woke up and realized, oh. No, like he realized, he became fully aware of something as a fact. He understood clearly that suffering arises from grasping and non-suffering is revealed when there is letting go. Consciously allowing things to come and go as they are, we can recognize the true nature of every thing and see the impermanent characteristic of all that we take to be me, mine, and the world. What arises, ceases. We know that on an intellectual level that all and everything is impermanent. We know, for example, that it was morning and now it is evening that yesterday was cold and today it's sunny and warm, or that we were once a child and now we are older. Even the body is fully a new body every seven to 10 years. That's kind of cool, yeah? Every cell in the body is replaced and new in this time frame. 10 years to regenerate a skeleton skin regenerates every 27 days. So even in this, what appears to be permanent vehicle, container, is ever changing each and every moment. We understand conceptually that everything is changing, even the stars and the earth, but can we perceive impermanence in a profound and immediate way? Until we understand our false assumptions about reality and that we are all attributing all sorts of solidity and stability where there isn't any, we won't experience the underlying peacefulness inherent in our hearts. When we see clearly the ever-changing nature of all conditioned phenomena, including our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and perceptions of self and other, the futility of grasping for certainty becomes 
obvious. In letting go, we know freedom. Taking the insight of impermanence to heart will have a revolutionary impact on our lives. A reading by James Baldwin, who, if you don't know, was an artist and a poet who was very, very, very active uh, in the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s. An African-American man who was also gay, who chose to leave this country for a really long period of time because he could not be seen. He lived in France for a long time. This is what he says. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun exonerably rises and sets. And one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying mystery from which we come and to which we shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. It is the responsibility of free people to trust and to celebrate what is constant. Birth, struggle, and death are constant. And so is love though we may not always think so. And to apprehend the nature of change, to be able and willing to change. I speak of change not on the surface, but in the depths. Change in the sense of renewal. But renewal becomes impossible if one supposes things to be constant that are not safety, for example, or money, or power. One clings then to chimerous, which means a thing that is hoped for or wished for, but in fact is illusory. One clings then to chimerous, by which one can only be betrayed. And the entire hope, the entire possibility of freedom disappears. So impermanence is one of three characteristics, the three characteristics, and you're going to be hearing more about this over the course of this next week, I think, actually, and you've already heard some of it 
in terms of Philip's talk on the Four Noble Truths. The three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and not self. From the teachings of the Buddha in the Buddha's words, edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Monks, form is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is no self. What is no self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this as it really is with correct wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is not self. What is not self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this thus, as it really is with correct wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. In the rest of this reading, I've taken the liberty to uh, clarify and bring up to present day time pronouns. So, excuse me, sir? if that doesn't work. <laughs> Suitable for attaining Nibbana. Monastics, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen. And what, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here, a monastic sees the eye as impermanent. He sees form as impermanent. He sees eye consciousness as impermanent. He sees eye contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feelings arise with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither pleasant or painful. She sees the ear as impermanent. She sees the mind as impermanent. She sees mental phenomena as impermanent. She sees mind consciousness as impermanent. She sees mind contact as impermanent. She, she sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. This monastics is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. They see the eye as suffering. They see as suffering whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. This is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. 
What is it we can meet in silence? Not the silence of ignoring or turning away or the uncomfortable at times awkward silence of not knowing, but the silence of the awakened heart and mind unfettered by a muddied mind. There is something very powerful and very sacred about holding what is going on in silence. There is a knowing of respect for those times in life you can't really know what to do or you can't really do anything. Sometimes it is a very honorable way of being with the impossible. When we bring mindfulness to our experience, when we sit and meditate, we are in the action of bringing forth a different way of seeing, a different way of understanding than the usual mundane, everyday perception of experience. When insight is present, there is the coming forth of the and and knowing, the relative and the ultimate understandings. Before this mind training, and even at times when practice is alive and strong, we move in and out of seeing how things are and misperception. We go about our daily life looking at life through one frame that has only one way of understanding. But when we remember or wake up, we can employ the practice and training that we have undertaken and we can see in a new way. This new way is most often enlightening and revealing and can offer a new way to live in the world which is always there, the world of seeing. This is how things are. It is one of the paradoxes of meditation practice that the stiller the mind becomes in meditation, the quieter it becomes, and the more we become acutely aware of how things are always changing. The busier the mind is, the more agitated the mind is. Then the mind tries to create the idea of permanence and stability. This is partly because when the mind is really busy and active, it tends to take up residence in the world of concepts and ideas because that is what the mind is chasing. Ideas often have a kind of stability to them, it seems, or we relate to them as if they are stable. So, when we start to stop the busyness and chatter of the mind, we become still. Then what we see are not concepts, but rather the immediacy of our experience. The immediacy of our experience is not a concept. Really, the immediacy of our experience is not a concept. And that immediacy tends to be seen as something that is changeable, as something that is changing all the time, moment to moment, second by second. In this practice and in the Dhamma of Buddhism, there is a lot of emphasis on the experience of change. It is a root foundational teaching that can set us squarely on the path 
to liberation. So we've been engaged in this training so that we can begin seeing the aspect of our present moment experience, which is always changing. We can notice that things arise, things pass away, that things are there that were not there before, and then they are gone. Sometimes the experience of impermanence can be acute and swift in normal life outside of retreat and even on retreat and we can be changed by it. I had this experience earlier last year. Actually, it's almost a year. June will be a year. Uh, so last June, my uh, partner, my husband, had a stroke. Um, and we were getting ready for my brother's birthday party. And we were in the basement cleaning up because it was going to rain and we wanted to make sure the space was good so that people could come inside and we're talking and I'm, I'm noticing he's kind of like dropping things and he's talking to me like really slow and but it was outside the scope of my awareness stroke so at some point I said well you know let's just put this down and we'll finish it in the morning I'll finish cleaning up in the morning and we woke up in the morning and uh, he literally, literally was talking gibberish. And it hit the heart, you know, this, this illusion and delusion of permanence got blown out the water as I watched this brain be unable to communicate and make sense. It's those kinds of experience that actually allow us to examine our lives and align and make decisions about how we live. And I think you all heard from his Vietnam story. <laughs> he, who was it that was talking about death and it being funny? I don't know. But he asked me a couple of weeks ago when I was on retreat, he said, so when I had this stroke, were you afraid I was going to die? And I was like, no, I was afraid you were going to be paralyzed. He was like, what? And you know, you <laughs> And we both laughed. We both laughed because that's who he is. But just how this um, concept and this distinction of impermanence and permanence um, play against each other um, in the moment of uh, non-awareness. <laughs> this experience of the body being not I, and he's fine by the way, um, about 85% recovered. It did not affect his mobility and movement other than that he's really slowed down like he, can't, he doesn't have stamina to walk long distances um, and if someone was talking to him they'd never know that there was aphasia which is what it's called when it when a stroke affects the language part of the brain the experience of the body being not I and the impermanence of the nature of things was a real lesson in how quickly things can change overnight even in a moment if one is able to access courage 
and intention, we can come away from a life-changing experience asking the questions, how do I want to live my life? What is really important and valuable? What does it mean to be a human being? What do I want to do to contribute to this earth walk? This poem by Mary Oliver, The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper. I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So there are these three characteristics, the three primary insights that give insight meditation the name insight. The first of these insights is impermanence. The second is suffering or dukkha, which Philip has been introducing us to in a verbal way, although I'm sure all of you have been thoroughly introduced to suffering in these last almost two weeks or month and a half. The third is not self, which I believe Bonte is going to speak to later in the week. The three characteristics are emphasized in the Buddhist tradition for a variety of reasons. One reason is that they're true, that these truths can characterize our experience that there are some very deep and important aspects to them, that there is impermanence, that there is suffering, and that there is not self. Another of the reasons why it is important in meditation to have some insight into the three characteristics is that they are a means for a vehicle to liberate the mind. The three characteristics are closely interwoven, and thus the teachings on the one are made clearer by the teachings on all, leading to understanding and wisdom. The characteristic of impermanence reveals the characteristic of suffering, and both together reveal the characteristic of not-self. This route to understanding the characteristic of non-self is taken because the selfless nature of things is so subtle that oftentimes 
It cannot be seen except when pointed to by the other two characteristics. When we recognize that the things we identify as ourself are impermanent and bound up with suffering, we realize that they lack the essential marks of authentic selfhood and we then can stop identifying with them. Understanding the three characteristics and employing practice offer the possibility for the mind and the heart not to be shackled, not to be obstructed, not to be held back by fear, distress, by greed, by holding and clinging. This makes possible this very deep insight into these three characteristics. With this practice, we aim to open the world of impermanence in all of the ways that it exists. How can we use this understanding to see in such a way that it helps us become freer? Can we ask the question to become motivated to go in that direction, partly sourced by the opening heart, which inclines towards compassion? and care for the world around us. This world and these times need people who can be present in ways that are not filled with suffering. In the Dhammapada, there is a statement about these three characteristics. It's very interesting because of what it adds. The basic formula for the three characteristics says, all created things are impermanent. All created things are suffering. All things are not self. The Dhamma teaches that all created things are impermanent and that all created things are in some ways not satisfactory. I remember Winnie saying that. But it also then changes and goes on to say that all things are not self. Here is the direct reading from the Dhammapada. All things are impermanent. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. All created things are suffering. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. All things are not self. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. So although I thought I had retired this little ditty, <laughs> I'm doing this to honor one of my girlfriends who's up in here with us. And what this girlfriend did was to put to a, uh, I don't know the, the right words, the right musical words, but put to this refrain to a gospel beat. But it's Dama. So maybe I'll retire it after tonight, but since she's here with us, this is for you, girl. All things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. With this truth, 
to be one brings happiness. So let that circle around your brain for a little bit better than that musical from the Disney Frozen. <laughs> okay, we need to see impermanence as an immediate perception. One of the noble things to do in human life is to get to the heart of human suffering, the causes of it, and somehow come to terms with it. And it can actually, this, this immediacy of experience and this um, subtle kick-in of understanding and permanence can happen in the, the smallest, most subtle ways. You know, I think one or two, you two of you may have heard this before, but I was at IMS on a, actually on a, a long retreat, a six-week retreat. And um, it was uh, the fall, so a lot of the flowers were gone, a lot of the remnants of summer weren't there, but there was this one tiger lily that was just holding on. And I walked out of uh, the dorm, and it was right in front of me, and it was was glorious. It was talking to me. It was like just shining its beauty, the last vestige of summer. And I actually was mesmerized by this tiger lily. And then the thought came in, I'm going to go get my phone so I could take a picture and be able to look at this and remember how beautiful it is. It took me less than a minute. This was before the technology ceremonies, so just so you know. Uh, it took me only a minute to go get my phone. I went and got my phone. I came out to take a picture of this tiger lily, and the moment had passed. It was already moving down the other side beyond that magnificence. So that subtle experience that I had actually was one of my biggest lessons around impermanence. So don't just look for the big ahas. There's some little peeps, too. The insight into impermanence allows us to understand that our life is precious and it's short. So for our own well-being and for the sake of others, let's intend to know and understand impermanence and look at what is really important and bring it into the world. It may be really important to get to this root of suffering. Another way to hear this is that you are interested in happiness and that you want to live a life that is happy and peaceful and somehow it has a deep abiding sense of well-being. This is a sense of well-being that is not easily blown away by the causes and conditions of the world or one's life. All the defilements ultimately stem from ignorance, which thus lies at the bottom of all suffering and bondage. Ignorance weaves a net of three delusions around the aggregates. These delusions are the notions that the five aggregates are permanent, a source of true happiness and a self. And that's going to be spoken about sometime over this week as well. The wisdom needed to break the spell of these delusions is the insight into the five aggregates as impermanent, anicca, suffering, dukkha, and non-self, anatta. 
This is called the direct knowledge of the three characteristics of existence. Anicca, the rapid and endlessly changing nature of all things in life. Nietzsche, permanent. Anicca, not permanent. This process of ripening takes time. You've been focusing on calming, stabilizing, steadying, gathering the mind. And now for some of you, it may be time to turn the volume up on Vipassana insight and start to look at the nature of these conditions and forms. There are three different levels or ways of experiencing impermanence. The ordinary level, which is available to everybody. We can see that change is happening all around us all the time. The seasons, health, loss, births, marriages, work, financial standing. At times, change is tragic or wrenching, which brings suffering at other times. Change is a delight, like when something is unpleasant for a long time and then it's over. Points of change like this often open the door to the possibility of shaping or creating something new, creating from emptiness. In other words, there is potential in impermanence and change. When we really take in the impermanent nature of things, it gives us a depth and richness to life that can be satisfying and or uncomfortable. But either way, there is beauty like jazz, like nature, like sports. How do we participate in the world? And I'm saying the world understanding that the practice that we're doing here is such that when we leave, we can take it with us and not forget and impact and influence both whatever our individual standing is. You know, Bonte introduced compassion practice this afternoon and he spoke to this third aspect of compassion practice which is action. So all of this and all of what you've been hearing is what points to and allows us to create clearing so that when action is called for or not called for, and the capacity to discern that, it can arise and evolve from nothing. One of the places that this role has the greatest importance is the responsibility we have in directing the change of our own heart, our own minds, our own physical and psychological being, and our own spiritual life. From Ajahn Chah, first one learns the Dhamma, but does not yet understand it. Then one understands the Dhamma, but has not yet practiced. One practices, but has not seen the truth of Dhamma. Then one sees Dhamma, but one's being has not yet become Dhamma. 
to become the Dhamma. It is difficult but possible for each person to come to and realize in their own heart the true nature of things is the way towards freedom. The second level is impermanence at the insight level. That is when we experience things without the filter of our labels and concepts. We tend to give things a semblance of permanence. We do it to ourselves and to other people and to our life all too often. We see ourselves in certain ways. We limit ourselves and put ourselves in certain categories and assume it is this way. To be able to drop behind the concepts or let go of the concepts is one of the results we seek from this practice. There is a clear and heightened sense of seeing what is happening now. When we stop thinking about things and seeing them in their immediate expression of perception and in presence, then we enter the experience of insight, impermanence. And when I say stop thinking about things, I'm not talking about thought stopping. That's not going to happen. Like I've said to some of you who I've met with individual, just like the heart beats and the lungs breathe, the mind thinks. But what I'm talking about when I say not thinking about is the judgments, the stories, the comparisons, the plannings, all of the things that you're becoming familiar with in terms of the activity of a mind that's not yet fully clear. Lastly, we can then open to the third level of insight. This can be called the liberative level of insight. That is the experience of liberation that can come in the moment when we see impermanence so acutely and deeply so that the heart says, I might as well give up. I might as well let go. I can't do anything else but let go. I don't know if any of you all have been brought to your knees, but I know I have. And actually, the, the seed or the antecedent or the ground from which my practice grew, from which uh, uh, this nervous system is sitting up here in front of you offering some thoughts about perceptions of how I understand this came as the result of what I have called my two years of living dangerously, which began in 2008 with the downturn of the economy. And within uh, a year and a half, uh, first my husband lost his job. Then two months later, we lost my father. And then four months later, we lost our house. Then five months later, I lost my job. I describe it to people like it was like, for those of you that have run track, it was like running hurdles. And before I could even get prepared for the next hurdle that was coming, here it was. And basically that experience for me, that moment to moment uh, ongoing 
stripping away, living in the loss of basically everything um, I knew to be me, the various identities that I was living from, got moved away. And I remember, I remember being in the kitchen of the house that we lost and literally falling to my knees and grabbing on the Dhamma saying, here you go. I got not holding it anymore because it's killing me. I can't plan anything. I can't move anything. I can't go anywhere to do anything about these circumstances and situations. So I'm done. And it was out of the complete, uh, hmm. over the next couple of weeks, like the complete, like truly standing in, truly um, um, finding home and emptiness that here, what, 2008, 12 years later, I have the life that I have. For some people, the deep insight into impermanence is called a gateway to liberation. This is the avenue by which some of us relax the heart, which is exactly what the heart wants. The heart and the mind is the same. The heart-mind wants to be so deeply trusting and settled on itself that it is not even holding on to itself. There is so much trust in the heart that there is no need to contract or hold on no matter what is going on. We are engaged in this activity of awakening. In some way, we have a faith or a trust in this process. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We think we are moving through the retreat. However, the retreat experience keeps unfolding in the heart. One week arises and now dissolved. Two weeks arrive and now dissolve. Sunday happened and then dissolved. Tuesday and almost dissolved. Life keeps manifesting, although we think we are moving through life. We are not destined to be doomed by our worries and our fears and the things we have not attended to. Everything is shifting and dissolving. You've done some really, really hard work. Some real good preparation. You've worked with many difficult states that you're not ordinarily engaged with, with attention in everyday life. You've faced undigested exhaustion, drivenness, yearning, frustration, worry, anxiety, sadness, even fear or maybe terror, joy, elation, high energy, low energy. There is at this time in retreat for some a desire to just coast to just sit back and enjoy, 
Enjoy the samadhi. The freshness and aliveness of the heart and mind that has been cultivated. You could do that. It's enticing. It's delicious. But if you listen for that still small voice where the inner world is screaming for attention, rock on. Continue the journey with conviction of an empowered practice. Use this time well. You've done all this prep work, now you get to create the delicious meal. Each of us defining for ourselves what is this contemplative path all about. We can use these moments of beauty and sacred space that are the fruits of our effort and in the composure, simplicity, and poise, seize becoming and look into what we take ourselves to be. What is me? What is my? What is myself? There is an opportunity here as a result of the many hours and continuous effort you have extended to create the conditions that support the exploration of what causes suffering. We can look at all the ways we strive to find ease, peace, happiness, which are much of the time misguided attempts to quell what is hard to be with. Use some of this accumulated power that you have cultivated to rest in that safe harbor. Understand that calm is conditioned, that feeling good is conditioned, that happiness is conditioned, just as sad, angry, and frustrated is conditioned. In other words, attachment to pleasure and aversion is just the same and causes disturbances as we cling to the pleasant and resist the knowing of this is how it is with the aversion. When the subtler forms of aversion are present and we do not see them, we can get dull or restless. Remember the hindrances. When we allow what is to be, whether judged and experienced as good or bad, it softens the heart. The greatest obstruction to samadhi is aversion. Not liking this, not liking that, causes contraction and muddied seeing. Sometimes states are so powerful, there's nothing you can do about it, but just bow into it. Be kind. Have compassion for yourself. We come to learn that willpower or cajoling or all manner of attempting to shift what is arising has no real influence on the state other than perhaps solidifying it. We incorrectly think that there is something we did to make it happen. What we can bring to meet the condition is to acknowledge, ah, it is like this. The approach or attitude is of utmost importance 
It is best to just relax and see what arises in the mind as it comes. When we've been seeking to control things and then we relax, what comes up is all the things we've been pushing away are not attending to. You want that. Ajahn Suchito calls these the orphans of consciousness. These are the conditions we lock away into the dungeons of our consciousness, things we don't like, the doubts, the jealousies, the dreads, the shame, the resentments, all these hindrances. It is one thing to be overwhelmed by them and another to push them away. We must learn how to welcome these states. This is what frees the dungeons of the heart. So I got another visual for you. So this bell, this empty bell, when hit, makes a clear, true sound. That's what we're working towards. But when there's doubt, when there's anger, Oh, I don't have enough stuff. <laughs> when there's laziness, maybe a little bit of joy, maybe a little bit of happiness, and then we go about trying to use these minds for this clear, true sound. This is what you get. <laughs> yeah no matter how hard you hit it. <laughs> so next time, that anger, that frustration, remember that. Remember what it sounds like yeah. <laughs> in your head. Notice the nature is always changing. The nature of these conditions we call me. The nature of the feelings, the body, the mental formations, all phenomena arising and passing away. Impermanence, constant and consistent change. You can depend on it. It is the nature of things. When we see Anicca, then we see Dukkha not reliable, not a value judgment, just meaning it is this way in this moment and shifting to the next moment. If we lean on a condition thinking it is solid and then that condition shifts, we fall. If we lean on a calm state, take a stand on it, when it shifts, we fall. Obtaining a calm state but not seeing it is unsatisfactory because it too shall change. When we see change, we start to see all things just like the dawn becomes midday and then midday becomes dusk. Things by their nature become otherwise. If we expect some condition to make us happy, some condition to calm us, some praise that leads to suffering. 
these conditions and circumstances are not our possessions. Each sound, each thought, each impression touches consciousness and dissolves back into the original brightness, the immeasurable. Letting it all be as it arises and dissolves back into presence. Contemplate that the nature of conditions is to come and go. Whatever arises, ceases. Be with the breath changing, realizing that it is not a thing. The in-breath, and then it is gone. And the out-breath, and then it is gone. Our willingness to be with the nature of change is profound. The Buddha taught that the power of even one moment of recognition of change is immense. Thoughts coming and going, conditions coming and going, when we can see this as it touches consciousness and dissolves. Let it be Dhamma. Let it be change. Just letting it be. Letting each one dissolve back into Dhamma and find the peace that's inherent in the heart. While things are empty of independent existence, they are also empty of our views about them, our labels and opinions, including thoughts of me and mind. They're just what the mind projects. An ocean or a tree doesn't give itself a name. In the same way, all that we take to be me is fundamentally empty in a process of constant change. Its existence is dependent upon a whole range of conditioning factors. The Diamond Sutra states, all conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. All the dhammas, all our experiences come and go. They are like shadows. Are shadows isolated entities? A shadow might look like a thing, but it is ultimately connected with light that is cast off another object. It is not separate. It's linked to something else. All conditioned dhammas are like dewdrops. They are like jewels on the lawn. But are they independent entities? They're there, but when the sun rises, they're gone, evaporated. They're gone. Are we separate selves? It may appear that we are, but other things like the sun, the air, the nourishment we take in, all continually sustain and support us.
home for you. I am nothing but oxygen and hydrogen, a luminous sphere of plasma held together by helium and gravity. And like a balloon, I float out on Earth, waiting to be released back into the sky, waiting to go back in the reverse direction from which I came, traveling through a warm tunnel of light and out into a dark, cold abyss where I will explode into a thousand pieces I shall leave behind my body, just like air abandons the skin of a shattered balloon. And the magnetic dust that carries my heart and spirit will lift us back to congregate and shine with the stars. Home again in the fluorescent kingdom of the constellations. I will once again be called by my soul's true name and my heart. It will flicker again with every memory from its many lives. In closing, I'll tell you what Ajahn Chah says, another, he's clearly you all get, he's one of my favorite guys. Know when the mind is peaceful. Know when the mind is a little more peaceful. Know when the mind is deeply peaceful. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. <clears throat> Neruda. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. 
Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in the winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Time for walking meditation, and for those of you who have some energy and vigor, we'll be back at 9 o'clock for last evening's sit. May you be well. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.